We're sort of in a fourth turning period right now. It's probably actually going to end with a major war, which none of us want. So what are some alternatives? And I think Bitcoin is just literally the most viable solution. Hello there. How are you all doing? Are you having a good week? It's Friday. Happy Friday. I hope you're all well. Four days time. The football season starts. And I know not all of you love football, but Real Bedford is the Bitcoin team. We won the league last year. We kick off our season on Tuesday against MK Irish. Hopefully, we're going to challenge for another title. Anyway, welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by the legends at Iris Energy, the largest NASDAQ-listed Bitcoin miner using 100% renewable energy. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and today we have Jeff Ross, the CEO and founder of Valeshore Capital on the podcast. Now, I caught up with Jeff in Nashville, and this has been a long overdue show. Jeff is a diamond in the world of Bitcoin. A little bit of an underused resource, I think, but I absolutely love talking to him. Now, we got into his background in medicine and the ever-increasing role of AI, and then we switched gears and got into the macro, the state of the global economy, and Bitcoin as a reserve asset. I know you're going to love this show. If you don't know Jeff, go and give him a follow. He is a legend of Bitcoin. Now, if you have any questions about this or anything else, feel free to hit me up. You know where to get me. It's hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Hello. Yeah, so um, 75 hard. Uh, so I want to lose weight because mm-hmm. uh, I keep getting fat shamed. <laughs> I keep getting fat shamed in the fucking comments. And it's funny, you go from when I started, I've basically just got fatter as this podcast has gone on. And uh, so it's like, and I, I've ta- I mean, I've probably been saying for like two years to Danny, I need to lose weight and don't do shit about it. Cause, um, so anyway, um, Jessica Hodler. Mm-hmm. Jessica Hoddle, uh, she she put this thing up. She said, I'm on day 75, 75 hard. I was like, what is that? That sounds like something I want to do. So I so I started it. It's no drinking, no cheap meals, keep to a diet, train twice a day, once has to be outside, both for 45 minutes, uh, and you got to read 10 pages of book and some other stuff. So I managed 15 days, and I was really good. And I'd shifted uh, nine pounds, and I felt good. Nice. But I couldn't get a second workout in one day. And so I was like, I broke. Uh, and then I was we're going to go back to it, and I didn't. But it was almost like a circuit breaker, like a reset. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, I carried on not drinking. I didn't drink for 35 days. And then I got here, and I had a beer and a whiskey with Danny on the first night. But I haven't drunk since. And so I've not given up drinking. I'm just not drinking for the sake of it. Gotcha. Just, yeah. if I want to have a beer, I'll have a beer. And if I don't want to have a beer, I won't have a beer. Good. Why do you not drink? No, I... Uh, I drink like I, a motherfucker. I'll, I'll, I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not a heavy drinker. I'll, I'll drink a few beers a week. That's about it. Yeah. Yeah. If we would have done an afternoon session, I would have thrown down a beer with you guys. But Dude. Water works. Odell would have had one at this time. <laughs> you can have a beer if you want. I'm not as hardcore as Odell. I mean, nobody knows what time we're recording. <laughs> That's true. Uh, nice to meet you, Jeff. Nice to meet you, too. We've Thanks. been uh, social media friends for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, admired you a lot. Uh, and Danny said, we're going to make a show, which is super cool. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you're one of the nicest, most rational people on Twitter. Uh, we don't get to see uh, too much crazy stuff. Um, but for people who don't know, know you, Dr. Jeff, tell them all about you. Sure, I'll try to keep it keep it short. So, Hey, man, it's a podcast. Go as long yeah, as you want. All right, all right. <laughs> so, yeah, people like to hear my story, how did a doctor get into finance? So, so way back in college, which was in the 90s for me, early 90s, 
uh, I had to decide if I wanted to follow a career in investments or become a doctor. And it was tough for me, but I ended up deciding to become a doctor. As you guys probably know, once you do that, your life is pretty much set for a while. So he, he, I did my pre-med stuff. I was a biology major in college, then went to medical school. In between there, by the way, I had uh, two years off uh, in between before I applied to medical school. I went to uh, Jerusalem, lived in Jerusalem for about nine months, worked as a nursing assistant there, uh, which was awesome. Toured around, learned Hebrew and, and Arabic a bit and, and some other languages because it was a, a hospice that I worked at where, where people would send their basically loved ones to, to die in, near the old city. Uh, that was awesome. And then uh, a friend of mine came over for the final few months and then we traveled through Europe uh, going kind of from place to place because lots of the other volunteers at this hospital or hospice uh, were from Europe. We were the only two Americans there. Uh, so that was fantastic. Kind of went from, bounced around Greece, Italy, and then went up through mostly Western Europe. Um, that was a great experience. So then came back, went to medical school, uh, and then uh, moved from Minnesota where I grew up to Wisconsin. Uh, did six years of residency, so that's training for radiology, and then I did a fellowship in something called interventional radiology, which is image-guided, minimally invasive surgery. So most people don't totally know what that is, but it's like if you ever hear of people getting stents in their arteries uh, or getting a catheter put in, maybe a, a port uh, for chemotherapy. I was the guy who did that. I used to poke holes in people, and then if they had a cancer, like a tumor on their kidney, I would put a probe into it and then burn it or freeze it so they wouldn't have to get their whole kidney taken out. So minimally invasive surgeries. Really cool stuff. So I, I got into private practice in 2008 in Colorado Springs, uh, became a partner a couple years later in the group. And then, because uh, I can't sit still, uh, got back into investing. So back in 2009, I started a blog teaching people how to invest on their own. Pull some Bitcoin. What's that? Pull some Bitcoin. Yeah, I bought some Bitcoin in 2000. Actually, I bought it in 2008. So I even you know, <laughs> front ran Satoshi. Just kidding. Uh, no, I didn't know anything about Bitcoin at the time. So teaching people about it, I was I got picked up quickly by um, Seeking Alpha and The Motley Fool and used to write for them. Uh -huh. uh, and then I had, had built up enough of an audience of people who said, hey, we like your style. Um, we like it that you're a doctor that I kind of focused on healthcare stocks and those sort of th sorts of things back then. Um, they said, hey, could you manage my money? I'm like, oh, I'm just a doctor. I just do this for fun. This is kind of a little side gig. Um, but planted a seed in my brain and I thought, do I really want to do this surgery stuff uh, with being on call every fourth night for the rest of my life? Uh, and then the other downside of interventional radiology is uh, to see inside of patients, you have to usually put radiation into them, which means if I'm standing next to the patient, I'm getting radiated all the time. So in fact, the guy that I took the uh, job from uh, in, in Colorado Springs, he actually had to retire because he had a brain tumor uh, that they think was probably related to the radiation. So you're standing next to this radiation column, basically. Uh, he got a brain tumor on the left side of his head, had a major surgery and, you know, um, so such is life. But I, I just I used to talk to my wife all the time, like, is it worth it? Is it worth doing this uh, to help people, but to also have this risk that I'm going to get a tumor when I'm 50 uh, and, you know, and die of that. So. Those are the those are decisions I made. Uh, out of that came Valeshire Capital Management. So I decided, you know what, I'm just going to do this. Uh, life is short, so I started an RIA uh, and a hedge fund called Valeshire Partners. Uh, founded that in 2013. Started managing money uh, professionally in 2014. 
Uh, by 2015, I just got so busy with the two careers that I had to do something. So I gave up the interventional radiology side and just did diagnostic radiology. That's where, so if you go in and get an MRI or a CT scan or x-ray, I'm the doctor that puts a report on that, uh, you know, interprets the results. Uh, so I was able to balance that or juggle that for a little bit. Then it got to be too busy uh, even doing that with my group because I had to be, I was hospital-based and in, in the clinic, so I couldn't really run my financial business and be at the hospital at the same time. I ended up retiring completely from radiology then back in, I believe, 2017. Then I got bored again and got my uh, MBA in finance in there just to kind of have that. Because a lot of people used to get on my case like, oh, doctors are terrible investors. Everybody knows this. Why, you know, why would I want a doctor you know, to manage my money? So I'm like, okay. So I went back and got an MBA in finance uh, and did that. So now you know, I can say MD, MBA, so people can't make fun of me. Uh, it was interesting. Uh, mostly worthless, though. I would uh, I encourage people. People ask me uh, often, should I go and get an MBA? Is it worth it? I say no. Um, it's just not, you can learn so much more by just starting your own business, uh, investing on your own, making your own mistakes. I learned from mistakes. I've made practically every mistake you could possibly make. Uh, try to stay humble enough to learn from them. Uh, so anyways, uh, now we're up to 2019. I went back and, and I missed radiology a bit. So, and I was done with my MBA. So I, I did something called teleradiology. I work from home. So I was able to do Valeshire on one side of my office. And then I have six monitors set up on the other side of the office where I, I was was reading radiology for a New York-based group, uh, and I did that for a couple years, um, and I'm, I'm almost getting to the end of this. So, so we're up to 2021. 2021, uh, Valeshire was growing so quickly, and it was, it was still just me, uh, but so I needed some help. Uh, I could either get help or be done with radiology, so I, I quit radiology again. I'm going to sound like just this crazy uh, journeyman. I, I don't mean to be. I'm usually actually pretty... Uh, dedicated to what I do and I stay focused, but radiology is kind of this love-hate relationship that I have an off and on again uh, uh, relationship. So 2021, I retired again from teleradiology, just did Valeshire, uh, and now fast forward to today, I'm actually, so I haven't done radiology for about a year and a half. I'm starting it up again in August, so actually next month uh, to do it. And I'm gonna, but kind of a part-time, full-time gig, and I'm gonna hire another person for Valeshire to handle the front end to do all the operation side of things, all the investor relations. And I'm gonna be the guy in the background just doing the investments, writing my newsletters, doing you know interviews, things like that. Uh, so that's where we are today. Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah. What, a, what a journey. So you... So it makes me think that that thing. Uh, I try to get out, but they pull me back in. <laughs> yes. keep Hotel California. In. Yeah, yeah. keep getting dragged back into radiology. <laughs> yes. Um, so on the radiology side of things, when you do teleradiology, what what exactly is it you're doing? You're remotely reviewing scans. Yeah. So it's like I'm one of the New York-based radiologists. That I just have my six computers on my desk. And I'm seeing the same work list that they're seeing. So you're in, you know, in somewhere in New York, you go get an MRI or a CT scan. It pops up on a list. I can be in Colorado reading that study, uh, you know, the when, internet. When when's AI going to read that study? Soon. So I think the first uh, specialty of medicine to go down to AI will be radiology. It just makes sense. It's just pattern recognition of images. Way more complex than most people think it is. Uh, just because you can you can understand basic anatomy, but everybody is a little bit different. And then to see how different disease processes affect the body, uh, and then uh, how, how does it affect it on CT? How does it affect it on the different sequences of MRI? And there's tons of different sequences. What does it look like on ultrasound? What does it look like on x-ray? There's a lot more complexity to it. I tell people who, it's sort of like self-driving versus full self-driving. 
you can, it's super easy to have to program a car to drive down Phoenix in the middle of the day with no rain or, and no people around. Uh, but when you get, you know, roads without markings or, you know, road construction and then there's people darting out on the road and maybe a deer jumps out in front of you, like, how, how do you program for that kind of stuff? It's much more complicated. Uh, so radiology is like that too. But that said, I think I, I, my plan is to work in, in as a radiologist until the field dies and is consumed by AI. And then ironically, I'm also in Bitcoin, which I think is going to consume the field of finance and kind of take down Wall Street over time as well. So I plan to be out of a job completely uh, within 10 years or so uh, for both of these fields. It'll probably be about the right age to retire. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Uh, the AI side of things is really interesting. I keep getting sucked into it. I talk about it a lot on the podcast, mainly because I use it nearly every day now. Uh, I use it to write things. I've been using it for design concepts now. I've been using Midjourney. Uh, it's a tool that saves a lot of time, makes us more efficient. So I, I'm, I'm all for AI right now. Um, but I have heard that on the radiology side of things that there is an expectation that AI will be more accurate and faster and it will get to the point where you won't, it's almost like the AI will uh, do the first diagnosis and then pass it over to the, I who you would probably tell me who that would go to for. Yeah, so that's how I view it too. So, so first of all, it's almost good enough already, but I think wow. the medical community will resist it, right? Because they don't want to lose their jobs. Being a radiologist is pretty lucrative, uh, also. So they're already testing it. They're already testing. Oh, sure. There's lots of radiology, uh, AI-based radiology programs out there. But what will happen? I think we're going to have this sort of awkward hybrid um, period for a while, maybe five, ten years, where they'll implement AI, but they'll always have a radiologist on top of it. They'll call it a, an assistant, a radiologist assistant, uh, and then people are at one at some point going to realize, hey, it does uh, at least a, of, as good of a job, if not better, way more efficient, uh, you know, way more cost productive. Uh, so, so I think what we can do is at some point, they're just going to be like, what do we even need the radiologist for? So I could sort of see it maybe having a hospital having one radiologist and then having AI do everything, but the radiologist oversees the conclusions. Uh, and then at some point, they're going to be like, look, we don't even need the radiologist. So There's there's probably something in it with how comfortable the patient would feel too. It's like getting on a plane. Mm -hmm. Like I know the planes fly themselves, but you wouldn't get on with a one without a pilot. Right. You still <laughs> want to know somebody's in the cockpit, yeah. right? And so, yeah, exactly the same with medicine, I think too. And well, it's funny, my dad was an aircraft engineer and he said to me, he said the b biggest risk to a plane is still the pilot. Pilot error sure. is the biggest risk. Mm -hmm. to, you know, if you actually go and look at a number of the you know, recent crashes over the last 10 years, you'll see most of them come down to some form of pilot error. And so eventually we'll get to a stage where planes will entirely fly themselves, but I'm, I don't think I'm ever getting on a plane without a pilot just in case. Oh, you will. Someday. Oh, I don't know, man. Yeah. I don't we like it. Will. 10 years from now. I hate flying as it is. <laughs> so the AI now is already as good, but I guess the fear is AI still learning it could make mistakes. Yep. Pretty much. Again, it's it's useful to think about it for driving, right? So so mm. people just still don't quite trust it. I have a Tesla, actually. One of, I have a bunch of old, terrible cars, and then and then this fancy Tesla. It drives uh, AI. Excuse me, this full self driving. It does it really well about ninety five percent of the time now. But about five percent of the time, we almost do die, and we almost hit people, and we go over curbs a little bit. And so it's still learning. And I like to kind of test it. I know that each little mistake it makes, and probably my reaction. They're probably watching me freak out uh, and grab the wheel and do something. Um, so it still has some learning to do, but I think of radiology as the same. It's it's still going to do it. I think in general, it could already do lots of uh, scan reading better than than radiologists do, um, but it still makes some kind of glaring mistakes and it's, it's working on that. So as the database builds, it will get better and better. But I'm assuming radiologists also themselves miss some things sure. and there are times that maybe AI is finding something that the radiologist doesn't find. Absolutely. 
Yeah, that's that self driving is kind of interesting. So if you're testing it, you've still got to be pretty alert. Oh yeah. So on the highway, no, I barely pay attention because it does so well. Like I go to Colorado Springs to Denver on a regular basis and it's fantastic. And if you're in stop and go traffic, it's great. You barely need to pay attention because it just sort of keeps the distance from the car in front of you and changes lanes if it needs to. Uh, but when you're in a busy city, it's terrifying to use it. So Right. And so if you're on the highway and you don't need to do anything, what do you do? I pay attention, like we all should. <laughs> I do. It's easy. It's easier to get distracted by your phone and do other yeah. things. Yeah. What, what is, is, I don't even know if there's any laws around this that you're still meant to be fully. But I have seen the videos of like people asleep or on their phones. Yeah. You you could. I mean, I could I could basically nap. But but well, I, I say that. But Tesla still makes you about every twenty seconds. You have to shake the steering wheel to let them know you're there. Right. So okay. they don't let you fall asleep. How did how did that one work though? I've seen a video of someone asleep. Yeah, there's something. What happens if something you don't shake it though? It then, it, then it freaks out. The, so so the lights start flashing and then noises and then it oh, actually really? just shuts down and it won't let you do the full self driving if you kind of break the rules too many times. Right. In a row. See, it's a weird thing. I actually enjoy driving. I like the process of driving. Like mm -hmm. when we're away making films, uh, the crew are like, "What?" Well, should we drive so you can rest? It's like, no, I enjoy, I enjoy mm -hmm. driving. Mm -hmm. like, I can't imagine a world where the car drives for me. I thought I said the exact same thing before I got it, but then I, then you get really used to it quickly. It's just so convenient. I don't want to buy an Elon car anyway. <laughs> Fuck that guy. Yeah. What a fascinating career. So, uh, and it's cool that you get to do both. Yeah. So what, what is the edge do you think you got in finance? What is it? Because you said people liked what you had to say, people are interested, wanted you to manage their money. What, what was your edge? Where was your? I think the it, it's it's not what most people think. It's not being smarter uh, in finance. It's not having better degrees. I think it's people. Honestly, it's humility, it's uh, patience. Those sort of things help you to do better. Knowing yourself. Are you more of a trader? Are you more of a long term investor? Do you want a short? Do you want to you know just be kind of a long only type investor? Um, uh, I, if Greg Foss says this regularly too, but like I've, I've made every mistake you can make so far. I'm sure I have a lot more to make, but, but I just kind of look at it like, you know what, you got to stay humble. You got to keep learning. Uh, I always do just, it's, this sounds trite, but it's true. Just always what's best for my clients. I'll take a hit if I have to, if it, if it's a benefit to my clients, um, having that in mind, I will tell you though, that, you know, I used to, I literally used to have patients dying on my table in front of me. They, they would get in a car accident. They'd be internally hemorrhaging. Uh, and I was the guy that had to get in there with a catheter and find the artery and stop the bleeding so they didn't didn't die. It's more stressful to me to actually manage money. In managing money in a bear market, when you're losing money for your clients and I'm losing to the S&P 500, it's so stressful, it keeps me up at night. You know, I, I, I wonder what am I doing wrong? Kind of try to, how, how can I make my system better? I would just tell people, a lot of people think, what a great job. You just sit there and, you know, parasite siphon off of people. I used to think that same thing before I went into finance. You're just some parasite. And I, and, and I honestly, I think most of the industry is that way, but I think for fund managers who really love investing and are, who are in it for the love of investing, you can, you, there is a big value add, um, but, 
it's 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 not without stress for sure. So I don't really have it's being a doctor doesn't give me much of an advantage other than I'm analytical and I'm kind of a systems based engineer based uh, investor. I think some of the best investors are that way as well, and some of the best macro thinkers. You know, I think of like Preston Pish, Lynn Alden. Mm-hmm. These guys are former engineers. They think in terms of systems and how can I improve this system. And so that's what I do as well. That's sort of how my brain works logically. Is I always want to have a better investing system for my clients and for my fund. Well, we'll get into the wider system but i thought it was quite interesting when you talked about doing an mba and it's a complete waste of time i'm my son just quit uni he he did he barely did finish his first year Hmm. he was doing an art degree um he came home at easter and uh yeah it's clear it wasn't working for him and me and my dad were there and we had the conversation with him said well you got three more years to go Mm -hmm. If you don't enjoy it, you don't do the work. Well, there's an option. You can come and work for me, your dad, and see how you get on. And he's he took that. Um, I think it was a a lucky get out for him because you know he was behind on the work. But he went to my dad uh, after a couple of weeks, and he said, "I've learned more in two weeks working with my dad than I've done in all of my schooling." Sure. And that whole university thing is well. I used to say university. I, we had this lad. Um, when he said my advertising agency, one of his teachers got in touch and said, "Look, he wants to go to university and study advertising, uh, advertising and marketing." But he's no, sorry, he wants to work in the advertising and marketing industry, but he's not sure he wants to go to university. What do you think he should do? I said, "Well, you definitely don't go to university to learn advertising." I said, "If he comes and works for me for three years." Um, even if you work for free, he'll be more employable than anyone who's done a gr- degree. But he can't work for free, so we'll pay him. So he'll get paid, he won't get debt, and he'll, he'll be more employable than yeah, anyone else. Mm-hmm. Uh, I hope he doesn't mind me mentioning, but Will's in a similar similar scenario. Um, I think the majority of degrees are an absolute waste of time. You know, if, you, if you're going to university to have fun and drink beers and party, fine, go for one year. But uh, I think it's a, a complete waste of time and... You can have. We've, I've employed people who've come in with a first, and the first six months they're working for you, you're just training them how to work. It's not the, you know, it's the conditioning for how hard you have to work, how you deliver. Um, I, I think university is. I mean, it's probably necessary for medicine and law and accounting, mm-hmm. but certainly for. The majority of industries. Yeah, and if I could interrupt, necessary only because the regulators make it so. Like, you can't be a doctor in the U.S. unless you have the appropriate credentials. I'm okay with that one, by the way. Right, exactly. <laughs> but but, but to your point, I think we're moving to a world back to the master-apprentice relationship, mm-hmm. which is awesome in a lot of ways. And I think that's something that Bitcoin affords us, is we'll be able to move into that uh, lower time preference uh, training where people just really develop the skills of their, you know, of their master uh, and become a, just a, an excellent apprentice and become masters themselves. I'm excited for that era, and I think you could do that easily in medicine, actually, ironically. Um, but and not and it's not easy. The training is not easy. Uh, but I think that you would be at least as effective um, of a surgeon or you know as a physician if you could work just closely with another physician for years and years. And I don't know that you need to go through all those hoops. You know, a lot of med school today is you're doing this sort of um, 
extracurricular kind of things, right? You're learning uh, training and, well, I don't even know how far we want to go in this, but you're learning non-medical training uh, that that is deemed important by the state and by the regulators, but doesn't necessarily make you a better doctor. And so... What, what, what do you mean by that, non-medical training? So, so things like, um, well, first of all, things that are important. Like, I, I think what's extremely important in medicine and healthcare, as we all know, right? Nutrition and exercise, that's like the foundation of health and sleep, those three things. There's no money in that. There's no, it's hard to make money uh, in that. And that's, and that's legitimate. You know, I think that first of all, the pendulum swing, uh, very strongly in both ways. And then usually the extremes are wrong, right? The truth is usually somewhere in the middle, whether we're talking about COVID, whether we're talking about how doctors, big pharma, right? They're the, the, one of the big, uh, narratives out there is that, uh, medicine is just owned by big pharma. That's sort of true, and there are truths to that, but that's not totally true, right? Uh, doctors are independent thinkers. Most doctors go into medicine because they truly want to help people. They are smart people who want to go out and help others. They're service-oriented, kind of like military people. Uh, you know, a lot of people go into the military, think they're going to do good for the world, you know, and use their military and physical skills for that. Um, but then they, but the problem is, is the system is broken. And that's the thing, like, so these systems, and I would say because of government's hand on that and because of the broken money, it affects all of these systems. So good people go into this system and then they get trapped within it. Even in medicine, even though I'm going back into it and I have this ongoing off and on, on again, off again relationship, um, I just feel like a cog in this healthcare system. I'm not the one making these decisions that makes it so clunky and inefficient and expensive for people. Super frustrating for me. I used to do procedures on people and I would have uh, cli- uh, patients come in and be like, I can't afford this. Like I was just diagnosed with cancer. I'm, I'm here, you know, maybe I'm going to do a breast biopsy or a thyroid biopsy or a liver biopsy or something. I'm, that's the kind of stuff I used to do. They'd be like, I just can't afford this procedure. I had some clients keep saying clients, had some patients who would, you know, they would be just in tears. Like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do right now. I need to get this diagnosis, but I can't afford the many thousands of dollars, you know? So, so the healthcare system is so inefficient. And then there's people like me who just truly want to help people, Mm. uh, but you're stuck in this system. And then one other, like one other case in point, um, one of these patients who was just sobbing about how expensive the procedures are. And she was very angry with me because on the bill it says, Dr. Jeff Ross charged you, you know, $6,000 for this procedure. And I'm like, just so you know, here's how this works. First, I don't get $6,000. I don't get $6,000. Like I actually got about $60 from that procedure. So if you want to talk about whether or not that's fair for me spending an hour to do this biopsy and getting paid 60 bucks, we can talk about that. I said, but you should be angry at the hospital. The hospital is charging you $5,000 for this room. Uh, you know, they're taking the fees from this. And then the insurers in between, it's all, it's this whole opaque system where the insurers are dealing with the hospitals and the clinics and the doctors are left out of these negotiations. We don't know how much uh, this patient, patient X is getting charged or patient Y, and it's different for each patient based on their insurer, if they have it or not. It's just this crazy, opaque, ridiculous system. And because of these inefficiencies, the people in the middle, the insurers uh, and the administrators, they're just siphoning off the money and the doctor-patient relationship gets left off to the side. And that's almost a secondary event. Like that's what instigates the fees, uh, but but it's it almost doesn't even need to happen as far as the people in the middle are concerned. And so very, very frustrating system. And I think a lot of like mil- the military is like that. People like people who, and, and it, as an American, we deal with this as well, right? I love America. I love the ideals of America, the freedom that it's su- supposed to uh, imply. Uh, and, I, and I love supporting vets. Colorado Springs is a 
a huge town for for veterans and for active officers because we have the Air Force Academy and an Army base there as well. Um, but and the military people will tell you this: they they go on these missions that they don't agree with, and they're wondering what the heck am I doing halfway around the globe? You know, doing some crazy mission, killing people that I don't know uh, for what? You know, and so so it, it leaves a lot of people asking like, who's in charge of these systems? Like, what am I doing? I thought I was here doing good, but I feel like guilty being a part of this system. I have that as a doctor. I know they have that in the military. School teachers have that because they're told what they have to teach, what they can say, what they can't say. It's frustrating for everybody. And it's this whole system-wide process of all of these major U.S.-based organizations that are just broken and corrupt down to the core. This show is brought to you by Unchained. Now, the events and exchanges and in traditional banks over the last year were all an important reminder of how critical it is for you to take control of your private keys. But taking ownership of your Bitcoin keys, you know what? It can be daunting. That's why our good friends at Unchained offer a personalized concierge onboarding service. Now, I have personally been through this process and set up the vaults for my football team, Real Bedford. And you know what? I know this is a personal recommendation here, but the multi-sig solution which Unchained have created is so easy to use. They ship the required devices to you and they walk you through it step-by-step so you can understand exactly how the vaults work. Now, after you set up, Unchained continues to provide you with regular support to help you get comfortable with controlling your keys. So if you've been putting off taking control of your Bitcoin wealth, Unchained's concierge onboarding is a simple way for you to get started. Get it done sooner rather than later. You can book your onboarding today at unchained.com forward slash what Bitcoin did. And at the checkout, you can get $50 off with the promo code what Bitcoin did. That is unchained.com. U-N-C-H-A-I-N-E-D dot com forward slash what Bitcoin did. Next up, it is Wasabi, who I am using to keep my Bitcoin private. Now, Wasabi is the easiest way to send and receive Bitcoin privately. And even for non-technical people like me, it is effortless and provides privacy by default. Now, with Wasabi, there is no minimum amount, so you can start coin joining straight away. And Wasabi makes CoinJoin transactions together with BTC Pay and Trezor users and BTC Pay server users can make payments in CoinJoin, which saves on fees and is a privacy improvement. Also, Wasabi just dropped a badass new feature. Now Trezor Suite users can CoinJoin directly on the hardware wallet, which obviously is very cool. Now if you want to find out more, please head over to wasabiwallet.io, which is W-A-S-A. B-I-W-A-L-L-E-T dot I-O. Also, today we have BitCasino. Now, BitCasino was established in 2013 and is the world's first licensed Bitcoin casino. It is trusted by tens of thousands of players worldwide. And not only do they have cutting-edge security, but they offer fast withdrawals and VOP experiences that money can't buy. BitCasino has over 2,800 games and tournaments for you to try out. And with their 24-7 live chat support, you can always get help if you need. Now, if you want to find out more about BitCasino, the first Bitcoin casino to win an EGR award, head over to bitcasino.io, which is B-I-T-C-A-S-I-N-O dot I-O. And please remember to gamble responsibly. Well, this is where I think Mark Moss has a really valid point. I've uh, had Mark on the show a few times and um, he talks about this kind of peak centralization. Mm-hmm. And uh, whilst I don't agree with Mark on everything, I think he's entirely right. We have reached this 
peak centralization where we have these massive institutions. It doesn't even matter if it's the UK or the US. I think the US is worse. And I think we have these global institutions, whether it's the World Health Organization, whether it's the UN, where we have reached this peak centralization and uh, the incentive structures of, of, of these uh, entities is such that uh, we aren't delivering we are massively inefficient. And we, it's really interesting when you brought up the the military. There's a really good documentary the BBC produced called Once Upon a Time in Iraq, I think it is. It's a four-part series. Mm. And uh, it's really, really worth watching. If we dig out the link, I'll send it to you. Cool. Uh, and there's a moment in there where a soldier was being interviewed and he was like, I don't know what we're doing here or why we're here. You know, wh- what are we doing? We're meant to be bringing freedom? Right. Like... Th- this isn't making any sense. And I think a lot of soldiers got disillusioned with that entire, you know, entire war. Um, going back to the health service, though, we've talked about it a lot on here. And uh, Bitcoin definitely changes you. Um, for me, I've definitely moved towards somebody who, who believes in uh, that we should have much smaller government. Um, I'm not completely anti-government. I just don't like where we've got to at the moment. Mm-hmm. But I've always struggled with those who uh, who don't like the idea of, say, the NHS in the UK. And by the way, the NHS has a huge issues right now that definitely need fixing. But I have always liked the fact that if I break my leg, I am not going to be bankrupt from that. Mm-hmm. Or if I have cancer, I'm going to get treated. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's anybody. And and. It's, it's really hard to argue against that. Nobody in the UK wants rid of the NHS. You know, if you had a vote, what do you reckon, Danny? What percentage would keep it? That would be tiny. Uh, sorry, keep. Percent, keep it, yeah, 89%. Yeah, True. maybe even high 90s. Mm-hmm. But I think at the same time, I've said this before on the show, I think most people would agree it needs some kind of reform. Definitely needs a reform. The problem is, is it's, um, you know, it's a vortex for money. Just more money goes in and it stays inefficient. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... And my mum worked in the NHS. She was a nurse and she often talked about there was just this massive growth of red tape and bureaucracy that got in the way of nursing. Um, So it does need reform. Uh, And I've had exposure to the US health system. Danny had to rush me to hospital one day with one of my SVTs. Uh, And um, you know all about those probably. Yeah. um, I've had that all tested now. I had an echo and a stress test. By the way, can I just say, that was the weirdest thing. So they put a drug in me to uh, increase th- my heart rate. Mm-hmm. And so I was laying there and it was just going thud, thud. That was yeah. so, it, it freaked me out. Yeah, it's uncomfortable. Yeah, it's not. But I'm, I've been given the all clear. I've got no Good. heart issues at all, um, which is great. Um, but I've had exposure to both. And I, I think the top end healthcare in the US is definitely better than the UK. I know, you know a friend of mine, they treated their son for cancer in the US because it's better treatment. But we, but anyone can get treated, and private healthcare works really well in the UK. In that you're essentially subsidising the NHS. And my health insurance is two hundred pounds a month hmm. for the highest quality care you can get. Uh, if I have cancer, I'm you know, seeing a uh, a consultant within twenty four hours, and you start treatment immediately. Um, I had, when I had my back surgery, when I had my um, MRI for my herniated disc, I was in surgery three days later. And the whatever it costs, I think it was nine thousand for the operation was just paid off by my insurance. So we have a system which obviously uh, collectively works better for people. Mm-hmm. Individually, not so because we have waiting lists, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I've really struggled to let that go 
despite people going, oh, you fucking socialist or whatever. I've really struggled. So I'm really intrigued to know how you would f fix healthcare, how you think it should work. Yeah, that's interesting. Danny's just pulled up. Just 10% of Britons think ministers have right policies on NHS. The pr one problem, there's so many problems with the NHS. One of the problems is, is every election campaign, if you, every single party will say, we're going to give more money to the NHS. Um, I'd, lo I'd love you to find, Danny, the increase in fund, the, the NHS budget over over time. Right, so I'm rambling lots of different things here. There's an, an, I've been speaking to people in the healthcare sector and been finding out why there's been massive increases in wait times in accident emergency mm -hmm. and big issues for okay so here we go so in 2008-2009 the NHS budget I'm assuming that's billions was 121.5 yeah, billion, billion. Uh, this year it's going to be 180 billion so that's a 50% increase in a what's that 10-12 years I know you can account for some inflation but that's massive mm -hmm. but in that time waiting lists have gone up um, and and so one they said one of the big issues now is uh, when I was speaking to I spoke to both a nurse who worked in an A and E and I spoke to a um, paramedic and they said people think of the NHS now like they think of Uber or Deliveroo. I've got any issue, I'm going to phone up. And I'm just going to you know try and get treated rather than wait for the doctor. And they they're dealing with a huge amount of anxiety. And panic attacks and so they have a lot of people come to the hospital like i've been with my svts where they it's there's, there's nothing wrong with them and so that's uh that's been a big issue so i've rambled on for ages there how would you fix healthcare <laughs> <laughs> well i'll tell you how i wouldn't fix healthcare because you know I've, i'm 48 now so i've been around the block a few times looking good for 48 man yeah look i feel old thank you uh, I feel great. Yeah, yeah. Check me out. That's right. Uh, so, so what I've been hearing since the '80s is that the solution needs to come from inside, right? Politicians are going to. If you just just elect the right person and get the right president in place and get the right, you know, set of Democrats versus Republicans, then we can fix healthcare. It cannot be fixed from the inside. Completely agree with that. Jeff Booth talks about this kind of stuff a lot, and I totally agree. Like, you can't fix a problem system from within the system. You need to get outside of the system and, and create a, an all new system. So here. I'll try to, I'll just do a quick summary of things that I think about healthcare that I think would be helpful. First of all, health insurance, to your point, has been basically bastardized. It no longer means insurance in the pure uh, sense of the word, right? So, so for instance, in America, at least, we have fire insurance on our house. My house actually burned down in 2012. We had this big fire in Colorado Springs called the Waldo Canyon Fire. It came out, took down 370 houses in our, in our neighborhood. Holy uh, shit. Yeah, crazy. So I lost 99% of all my stuff. That's a story for another day. But we had fire insurance, right? For that one crazy thing that you need, you know, when you need fire insurance, it's here for you when it's just the worst possible catastrophic event happens. What is healthcare? Healthcare in the US, and it sounds like the NHS is similar. You go in if you have a sniffling, you know, some sniffles, you have an earache, you have an SVT, you know, or you have cancer, or you get flown in from a helicopter because you got in a horrible crash, you know, in, in the mountains or something. So I would say that number one, insurance should go back to being 
insurance, health insurance. It should be for, and, and the, the concept that's closest to this in the US is high deductible health plans. So basically, if you have a catastrophic, catastrophic event, if you're in a terrible car accident, your whole family or something, and you, you're gonna incur you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars of bills, you definitely should have insurance for that kind of thing. If you get diagnosed with cancer, that's gonna require you know, tens of thousands of dollars of treatment, you should have insurance for that. For basic stuff, you should not have insurance. You should just break pay. Your finger. If you break your finger, right? If you have a if you have a cold or you know, maybe you have covid or not and you want to go get tested, insurance should not cover that kind of stuff. So that's the the first problem. You have to delineate what is a catastrophic event and what is just kind of routine healthcare. Routine healthcare should be paid, I believe, completely different than how it is now. Right now, the system is totally opaque. The patients don't know how much things cost. The doctors don't know how much things cost. You know, I, I tell people this, managing, imagine going into McDonald's and saying, hey, I want a Big Mac and fries and maybe a Coke. And they're like, okay, and, 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 and they just gave it to you and they're saying, we'll bill you in a month for that. And you'll be like, well, how much, is, how much does it cost? And like, we'll tell you in a month. And you get a bill from the bun company, you get a bill yes. from the burger, yes. a bill from the cheese company. Exactly, and that's what happens. I just had some major health stuff back in December. I had this nose surgery because I couldn't breathe very well. And then uh, it went bad and I got this face infection that was crazy uh, and I had to have all this stuff done. Then I had some clots in my arm that then went to my lungs. I had something called pulmonary embolism. And, and so- on, that's dangerous. Yeah, I almost died. It was pretty wild. Um, so <laughs> I had a really rough, like three month stretch here for, uh, a couple months ago, Dude. but, but so got, thankfully, you know, got past it. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. Uh, and, but I got to see the system from the inside as well. Right. So now I'm the patient I'm sitting in this, this, you know, junky ER in our town waited for like five hours to be seen. And I'm having severe, severe chest pain. Like I literally can't breathe. I'm telling him, I said, I'm a doctor. Like I was telling the people I'm a doctor. I don't, I don't, um, I don't speak in hyperbole generally. I'm telling you, this is the worst pain I've ever felt. I can't breathe. I feel like I'm going to die. Like, I think I might die. This is how bad this is. And they're like, okay. And they sent me off in the waiting room, put, you know, they, they started an IV, put a tag on my, on my, my wrist. And then I just sat there again, you don't know how much it's going to cost. Uh, don't know who's going to see me an ER doctor. And one of the times I went to the ER came to see me and said, hi, I'm not actually doing anything, but I'm in charge of the ER tonight. So I just wanted to, you know, say hi, everything good. And I said, yep, literally that was our encounter. I got a thousand dollar bill from her uh, a month later, thousand dollars. And I'm like, you literally, literally did nothing other than say hi to me, you know, but that's a scam. Yeah. It's all a scam. So again, opaque pricing, filled with middlemen who, who benefit from the opaque pricing. How would I fix it? Like the first step I would do is make it so just you have legitimate pricing. The best doctors get paid the most to do the most complex procedures, right? Like you would expect for anything. If you wanna buy a fancy car, uh, whatever from a fancy dealership, the highest performance, you would expect to pay more. You pay less for you know less quality doctors uh, doing easier procedures, those kind of things. And just be like, here's how much it costs. If you don't like that, go shop around. That's great, right? Get bring some competition back into it, like an actual free market. Um, it's it's the farthest away from a free market that you could possibly get. And again, I think the people in the middle love it. I, I always say anything the government touches, to, it turns inefficient and opaque, and it's it's tough to read. It happened in education, healthcare, military. We could kind of go down the list for all of the things that happen. So that's what needs to happen. We need to bring it back to a free market system. That's step number one. That would reduce costs, I think, dramatically by 50 to 70%, just right off the bat. Um, I can stop there. No, keep going. I mean, this is, this is, this is fascinating. Um, who, who's milking the system? 
Who is who is taking a significant portion of money for doing with this least contribution? Sure. So again, and I'm not saying these are bad people because I'm sure there's people listening to this right now. So there are so and you've probably seen these charts, the growth of healthcare administrators relative mm. to providers. So if you look yes. at a chart from like 1970 to today, so the, over the last 50 years, the healthcare providers is this tiny little baseline at the bottom that you can barely see, and administrators have gone parabolic. Can you find that chart then? Yeah. I remember, I remember Marty Bent posted it okay. a long time ago. Okay, yeah, it, it gets posted a lot. So that's number one, right? That's clearly highly inefficient. Uh, I think he's got it. Okay, cool. So for anyone listening, Danny's just pulling up this chart. Um, yeah. yeah, that's great. Wow, so physicians has grown from percent growth from what, 1977, should we say? What happened in 1971? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Holy shit, yeah, so the chart runs from 1971, and is, I guess, is that, is that you'd say that's annualized growth is like, it's... 32%, 3,200% growth in administrators. So you say, why is U.S. healthcare expensive? Like, well, so, so that, sorry, physicians has grown, what, What's that, 150%? 150%? And administrators, 3,500%. Since 1970. Yeah, the work is done by the physicians. Right. So who are these administrators? What are they doing? <laughs> They're the people that sit in their rooms and tell doctors what they should do and make us mad because uh, we just want to like do what we think is best. So, so there's them, and obviously I'm oversimplifying, and I, I actually don't even mean to offend people because, again, administrators go into this thinking that they're going to do good for people by being a healthcare administrator, but it's all part of the problem. The, the problem is the broken system, but not it, the individuals. It went parabolic between 91 and, say, 96. It's gone from in 90, 91, 500% in 96 to, what's that, about 2,300%? Yeah, yeah. What the fuck happened in the 90s? Was it something to do with Clinton, Hillary, Hillary care? I don't know. Some, something definitely yeah. happened. And I would say it's not good. And you can look at the effects now. So that's a, so to me, that's the number one reason. Why is U.S. healthcare so inefficient and expensive? Well, there, there's your answer, at least part of your answer right there. Is any part of that to do with fear of litigation that they have put yes. procedures in place? Yes. So that's another huge thing, right? So the regulators come down and they say, I think it's a good idea that you do A, B, C, and D. And then it turns from a good idea to, well, let's put this down in writing to let's make this law. You have to do this as a doctor. Otherwise, you're not going to work here anymore. Well, that's the comparison I had from the UK to the US. So when I have an SVT in the UK, I go to hospital, wait in A&E, they see me, they do an ECG, they uh, do a blood test, um, and then I go home. Mm -hmm. In the US, I had an ECG, I had... Uh, four vials of blood taken for multiple tests and I was given two drugs at the end to take. I can't remember what they were. And then I had to sign a bunch of forms. Mm -hmm. And I was like, huh, why am I getting the drugs here and not in the UK? And why am I signing all these forms? And the obvious reason is, is the fear of litigation should have something happened to me afterwards. And that was just a super interesting Yeah comparison to, between the two countries. That's American healthcare also. So the fear of litigation is real. And so, so, you know, malpractice insurance is a massive industry for physicians. 
Um, if you, you know, everybody knows that humans make mistakes. They even know that doctors make mistakes, but God forbid you make a mistake on my exam, right? Like, or, or I'm coming after you. So that CYA medicine, cover your butt medicine is massively prevalent. So case in point, if you come in, say you're a, you know, a 10 year old kid, you, uh, got in a, a, a wrestling match with your brother and you fell and you hit your head. What happens in the, so most countries they'd, they'd look at you and they'd say, how you doing? You know, you know, any, any issues with your vision kind of thing, do a little test or something, any headache, uh, maybe a little bit kind of hurts. You're probably fine. Right. That's, that's kind of what, how most of the world works in the U S you would come into the hospital, you would go, you would get a head CT, uh, which costs, you know, probably a thousand dollars minimum, uh, to have that done. And it would, and, and the doc, even though the doctor says he's fine, he had he has a little residual headache. He has no other symptoms of concussion, no no symptoms of head bleed or anything other dangerous. You know we should probably just let him go. In the U.S., you would absolutely get a head CT um, because of CYA, right? You have because because of the one in a thousand times that there actually is a bleed in the head, and if you miss it, you're toast. Like you're just dead meat. So you you have to cover your butt. Uh, I think this is the problem with centralized institutions. You can take it to everything. The, these bureaucracies is that trying to have a zero failure rate right. across everything, you know. And you can tra- you can transfer that. You can take it with your example on healthcare, but you can also take it into sports, like kids not being allowed to fail yeah. when they're early on, or you can take just anywhere. There's no allowance for failure rate. So a really brilliant tweet. Um, uh, it was a promoted tweet as well, which I thought was quite interesting. But it, and it was a guy clearly wanting to grow his profile, and it said, "What if we taught children that failing is learning?" Hmm. Love it. Yeah, um, it's that that desire for a zero failure rate, and also that conditioning we've got. We've kind of almost conditioned society that everything is someone else's fault, mm-hmm. and if something happens. Like that's bad to us. We need someone to blame or someone to pay for it. Right. We've gone beyond this thing. There's like, look, there's failure rates, there's accidents rates. There's yeah. We've gone beyond that. I think that was one of the biggest issues in COVID, is that we were trying to get to a situation with the zero failure rate. You know, we, we're going to fight. You know, I got sucked into it. We're going to fight this. We're going to we're going to try and get to a situation where nobody catches this. This, this, right. this virus that spreads this massively contagious yeah, we, virus, yeah. yeah and and if we lock everybody down that, that nobody will get it and yeah when we open up it'll be gone right and you know it's i just find this everywhere okay so just just to bring this back almost to bitcoin um we'll, we'll get your origin story but has bitcoin helped with your give you a lens to look at things like this then Absolutely. Uh, the, I would say the number one reason is because Bitcoin forces an honest unit of accounting on whatever it touches. So you can't mess around with it, right? Like, like you can with the dollar, right? The dollar is wink, wink, nod, nod. Hey, hook me up, print some money, and I'll, and I'll be the first recipient, the Cantillon effect. Or Cantillon effect. Um, Bitcoin does not work like that, right? So that honest unit of account is, is kind of number one. Number two, it, as we all know, it, it gives you that lower time preference. So like, how can I build today something that will grow and become something beautiful and awesome and helpful tomorrow? Um, Bitcoin affords you that time versus fiat, which doesn't. Fiat, you, you feel like I got I to gotta do something now. Like if I'm a politician, I got to say the right thing to get elected so I can do my thing now. I don't care if I'm screwing the next generation or even, you know, five, four years from now, I don't care if I'm screwing them. I need to do what I got to do today to get elected. Uh, I got to spend the money today because it's, you know, it's just, it's depleting, it's melting uh, in purchasing power right before our eyes. So, so 
Bitcoin changes, to me, it just sort of changes everything. And in medicine, because of what I was talking about earlier, where it's this opaque system, right, of payment, nobody really, it's not a free market, even remotely. Nobody, including doctors, have no idea how much this procedure is going to cost. You know, if I read a CAT scan for somebody, like, is it going to cost them $500, $5,000, $10,000? I, I just don't know that we're out of the loop uh, on that system. And so I think Bitcoin would bring back uh, more of a free market to medicine. And that would be a wonderful thing. And then obviously the obvious thing about Bitcoin, and I don't, I, we don't have to go down this tangent right now, but obviously it's, it's designed to increase purchasing power over time versus the, the fiat government fiat system is designed to deplete purchasing power over time. And so if you're just in medicine, medicine, healthcare costs in the U S are world famous for how much they've just, just totally been let out of the bay, yeah. right? They're, they're insane. Nobody can afford healthcare. You pay 200 pounds a month for NHS. We pay 2000 dollars a month for crappy, crappy healthcare. With a big deductible. With a huge deductible, right. Yeah, $20,000 deductible or something. So Do you know about the deductible? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, we've, we've got you covered, right? Insurance companies are always there for you until you need them. That's, that's kind of my standard mantra that I tell people, tell my patients that. You think you have insurance, you think you're being covered, but you're not. You're, you're covered after you pay your deductible. You got to factor in what you pay each month. Uh, you know, you could buy a house for what you spend on health insurance if you, if you save that money for four or five years or so. So um, I'm, I'm digressing here, but, but Bitcoin, you know, and what it represents and taking that personal responsibility is another huge thing, right? That's another funny thing about America is we're, we're two different people groups. We're ultra super healthy individuals and we're just the most horribly, you know, unhealthy obese population on the planet as well. Depends what kind of population you're looking at. So that taking responsibility for yourself, right? Doing things like just eating well, you're talking about your exercise plan, you know, just walking getting off your, your dumb butt for a couple hours a day, right? And, and, and walking around the neighborhood and sit, getting, getting some sun and getting enough sleep. That literally, if you could just do that in the U.S. with, this, with our just massively overweight population, you could reduce healthcare expenditures by a, a definitely noticeable uh, um, amount. But again, to your point earlier, how do, you, how do doctors make money on that? Well, they can't really, right? Mm. It's just giving good advice. Like if people would just listen and actually have self-discipline, take personal responsibility. It's what we talked about. Uh, you guys brought up at the discussion last night with Preston and, o and Odell, taking personal responsibility, right? Being like, I can take ownership of my Bitcoin in cold storage. And so many people put their hands up and they act like they're victims and I need somebody to do this for me, poor me. You know, it's like, well, sure, there will be groups and organizations that will do that for you, uh, but you're losing your freedom then, uh, you know, right? We're, we're, you're going to have to get permission, sort of like with COVID, we're going to tell you, you can move or you can get out of your house or you can travel, uh, but and we're going to protect you, right? It's all under the guise of protection, uh, but we're going to take away your freedom then if that's what you want us to do. So, well, I love the personal responsibility side yeah. of Bitcoin. Um, you know, I've, like I said, I've been putting weight on ever since I started this podcast. Yeah, I, honestly, the, the length of this podcast, I have probably put on yeah, close to 40 pounds. Nice. Yeah, like three, three and a half stone, right? All muscle? <laughs> I wish, <laughs> I wish. And the entire, the reason it's happened is me. Yeah. It's my choices. I can make the excuse, well, I'm traveling with work. Well, yeah, but I can still cook a, well, I have daddy cooking for me these days, but uh, I can still like choose to eat healthy. I can yeah. still choose to drink less. I can still choose to go for a walk. And I just didn't, I took no personal responsibility. Yeah. It's entirely my fault. And I love that Bitcoin brings back this personal responsibility. One of the guys, I didn't answer it, but I don't know if you remember last night, one of these guys brought up the question. He said about, 
uh, he talked about the uh, wealth disparity that will happen with Bitcoin. We're going to have some people who are going to be fabulously wealthy and others who, you know, who don't have a lot of Bitcoin. And I thought, well, the good thing about that is it's going to bring back the personal responsibility mm -hmm. for your money because there's going to be less to go around from the government. You're not back to the Breedlove interview where Breedlove talked about uh, the thing, problem, one of the problems with democracy is you're voting other people's money to yourself. Mm -hmm. You can have less ability to vote other people's money to yourself, so you're going to have to get out there and work. Again, personal responsibility. Mm -hmm. I love that side of things. As somebody who ha has, in certain areas of my life, had complete ill-discipline, um, no, I'm, I'm a big fan of that. I did write something down here, actually. Um, you said politicians have to say the right thing to get voted. What's been super interesting right now is, I brought, again, I brought it up last night, is that all these presidential candidates, they're all pro-Bitcoin. They're saying the right thing mm -hmm. to get voted in. Now, mm -hmm. I believe that uh, RFK is a Bitcoiner. I don't believe that Vivek and DeSantis really are Bitcoiners. But the game theory is now working out that they have to be because they want that voting block. It's always, it's kind of weird. Like the game theory of Bitcoin, everything always works in the right direction. Everything's good for Bitcoin. If you, if you wait long enough. Yeah. Everything does. All roads do lead to Bitcoin. But it's, it's, it's frustrating to wait. For those of us who figured it out early on, it's, it seems like it's taking forever, right? Let's go, let's go. Like, let's, let's change the world. Let's, let's get the whole monetary system figured out. We can do it, right? We, we have all the pieces in place. But the world isn't ready for it. Well, yeah, you, do, you, you, know, you couldn't have it overnight. It was yeah. like, um, I think it was Scott Horton I interviewed and talked about, yeah, he's a libertarian. And he, I think he even wrote an article on this. If there was the big red button to get rid of government, he wouldn't press it because it would be catastrophic, it would be bloody, it would be, it would be a revolution that leads to a lot of death. Yes. You know, there needs to be a transition, and it's the same with Bitcoin. It's almost like, yeah, I, I don't know how much of this was Satoshi genius and how much was luck, but the, the halving is a, creates this amazing cycle that gives us step changes every four years. Mm -hmm. Every four years we step change the amount of people who come on board, the amount of companies there are. You know, it's, it's allowing us to transition from one to one kind of paradigm to the next, hopefully is a peaceful revolution. Right, because the slower it takes, right, and the more people you can sort of get on board, the more likely it's going to be peaceful. I totally agree too. I think it would rapidly disintegrate into chaos. You know, I'll, I'll tweet out things like, hey, if I was a president, first, the first thing I would do is just, you know, cancel all government programs today and put us on a Bitcoin standard. It would be just pure chaos, obviously, uh, right? But we would you, we would climb out of it. Humans climb out of chaos, uh, like we climbed out of World War II. So you can rebuild, uh, but we would obviously prefer to do this without loss of life and you know keep geopolitical tensions down as much as possible. So I think there is wisdom in it taking long. And I agree that four-year cycle, you know, about three-year and eleven-month cycle that that Satoshi started. Um, I think there is some wisdom in that. I don't know if he foresaw that or if it was just luck, you know, or, or you know, just fortunate. But but it's I think it's good for America. It's good for the world as well. Uh, hopefully, it will help us transition peacefully. Yeah. I think that's what we all want. In your uh, in your role as a uh, investment manager, it, is Bitcoin part of it? Are you advising on Bitcoin? And what cautions do you have with that? Because it's 
you're advising a completely different asset from kind of equities and yeah. So so I'll give you my little Bitcoin origin story. It all yeah, kind of ties in do. here. So so as a as a fund manager, I'm always looking for the the assets with the best risk adjusted returns or the highest sharp ratio. Uh, and obviously, Bitcoin, you know, came onto my radar. It, for me, it was about 2015 that I started looking. I think I first started buying back in, back when it was hundreds of dollars. I still remember, by the way, uh, thinking about. I can't believe that someday the price of one Bitcoin might be as much as an ounce of gold. And then I actually distinctly remember the morning. I remember where I was sitting. I'm like, Bitcoin is more than an ounce of gold right now. I was telling my wife, she's like, okay. And I'm like, like, why do I care? I'm like, this is amazing. And, you know, we just didn't think it was ever going to get there. So, so. My first Bitcoin was 80 pounds. Dang. Way to yeah. go. Sub 100. What was yours? I think it was about $450 or something like that. Oh, yeah, wow. nice. but I don't have any of the Bitcoin from 2013. Right. I, I, yeah, I bought it for for the Silk Road. Uh, <laughs> um, but um, uh, Tim Draper has three and a half of my Bitcoin. <laughs> because why? Because he bought the Silk Road Bitcoin. Oh, funny. Yeah, I've said like I keep. I said it to him. I was like, "Can I have my fucking Bitcoin back?" <laughs> <laughs> he wouldn't give it to me. You took it from me when I was being stupid. Yeah. That's not fair. Um, sorry, you carry on. Okay, okay. So 2015 found Bitcoin. Then I got, I was, I, I, I affectionately call myself a former DGen crypto trader, right? I Love was one it. of those guys. Got attracted to the shiny object. I'm like, well, and I just didn't know back then. This was before Bitcoin Twitter. This is before I knew anybody in the space. I was just kind of by myself trying to figure this stuff out. I got attracted to the, the crypto shiny object. So by the end of 2017, the big bull run, I had sold all, so this is back when also, when you wanted to buy other cryptos, you had to basically, the, the only trading pairs for the most part were Bitcoin. So you had to sell your Bitcoin. I had to buy Bitcoin and then take my Bitcoin and buy crypto with that. By the end of 2017, I had no Bitcoin and I had tons of these cryptos and I thought I was a genius like we all did, like everyone does during a bull market. By the way, this has nothing to do with Veilshare. This is just me personally doing this kind of stuff. I always feel like I need to disclose that. Um, and then 2018 happened. 2018, everything crashed. So all of these cryptos, all these you know ICOs and all that nonsense, they dropped 90 to 99 percent. I had no Bitcoin, and I got hit with just this gigantic tax bill uh, in 2018 for my 2017 successes. Yeah. But then I did. But all that money was basically gone now, right? All the, a lot of those gains. So I learned a big lesson there. So first of all, I, I realized, okay, that was really stupid. Second of all. Then the block size wars were going on at that time too. And I was one of those people, I was again on the outside. I didn't really know what yeah. was going on. I'm like, well, I don't know. That sounds kind of reasonable. Maybe we do need bigger block sizes. And then I heard the people, you know, so all those arguments, we don't have to rehash all that. Um, by 2018, at the end of 2018 and early 2019, I realized there's something to Bitcoin. Like it just keeps sticking around. And it turns out that the smaller block size was, was probably right for the decentralization aspect. So that makes sense to me. So now I'm starting to get it. Uh, and then um, I think Safedine's book came out right around 2019. And then around that same time, um, um, Plan B's stock to flow model came out. And then if you remember, we had that spike uh, where everybody was all excited. Everybody knew that the stock to flow model was the solution. Yeah. New. Uh, and, and right. And so the price spiked and then, and then we kind of came down again. I'm telling you that's going to come back. You think so? Yeah. If if what happens, if what I think is going to happen over the next few months happens, it's going to be back in range, and and I think he will be putting out a narrative of why, you know, underperformed for a year and a half. No one's going to take that seriously. I think some will. I think some people who are new will take it seriously. I mean, he has one point two million followers or something. One point three million yeah. followers. I took it seriously. Actually, do you know what? The interesting thing is about there's very, very highly credible Bitcoiners 
who took it seriously. I remember being sat with some in Austin, four of them, explaining to me why he's right on this. I think even Saifedean was keen on it as yeah. well. Like a lot sure. of people, very credible people were keen on it. I think it was Corey was the first who came out and said, this is fucking bullshit. Right. Right. And so I was one of those guys too. I was on, I was pro stock to flow Yeah. after reading Saifedean's book. Cause he talks about stock to flow and then like, wow, this actually makes sense. Yeah. Uh, and then, but, but what it doesn't talk about is the demand side of things too. Right. So you have to, so that's what Corey brings up. It's, it's, he's all like a demand based guy. And so, um, yeah, um, there's so many different directions we could go on there, but what is your origin story origin? Oh yeah. We're still on that. Okay. Yeah. So, so, so by 2018 and 2019, I had basically gone down the rabbit hole. And so now my next job was as an advisor, I need to start teaching my clients about that. At first we had zero exposure to Bitcoin. And then I think it was 2019 that I started putting some clients who were amenable to it into it. I would talk about it in my monthly letters and things like that. Um, then what was great is I had test cases. I had things to compare to. So I had my Veilshire portfolios with Bitcoin a little bit, like one to 2% exposure and the Veilshire portfolios without. Because the people who didn't have it, they say all the things you say, right? They're scared. It's used by terrorists. It's terrible. Uh, the government doesn't approve of it. It's way too volatile. And I was like, you know what though? And, and Alpha Zeta has done some great work on this stuff too, right? Mm. About how it actually decreases portfolio volatility overall, even though it is volatile. It's just how portfolio mechanics work. So what I had to show my clients is, look, here, here, and, and I think about in the 80s, uh, in the US at least, we used to have these commercials, they would say, this is your brain, and they'd, sh they'd show an egg, and then they'd crack it, and they'd pop it into the frying pan, they say, this is your brain on drugs. <laughs> and so I used to tell people, like, this is your portfolio, and this is your portfolio on Bitcoin, and look at the difference. And we have less volatility, but better performance, even with just a little bit of Bitcoin exposure. So I went from 0% of Veilshire clients having Bitcoin to small minority of them to now we have it where everybody has at least some Bitcoin. And I kind of, and so I base my, our portfolios on 60-40, except it's 60% stocks, 40% sound money. So the ones who are more aggressive have the highest Bitcoin exposure. Uh, the ones who are the you know, most conservative, they have a lot of gold and cash exposure, plus just a little bit of Bitcoin. This show is brought to you by Ledger. Now, Ledger is the world leader in Bitcoin security and is the best way to own and secure your private keys. If you're still holding Bitcoin on an exchange or with a custodian, it might be time to take your security more seriously because remember, not your keys, not your Bitcoin. The Ledger suite of hardware wallets paired with the Ledger Live app are the easiest and safest way to start managing your own private keys. You can send and sign your Bitcoin transactions with full transparency in the Ledger Live app and honestly, it couldn't be easier. I have been a Ledger customer since 2017, and I absolutely love their products. Now, if you want to find out more or purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, then please head over to shop.ledger.com, which is S-H-O-P dot L-E-D-G-E-R.com. Next up today, we have our lead sponsor, Iris Energy. Now, Iris Energy is the largest NASDAQ-listed Bitcoin miner using 100% renewable energy. And their strategy is to target markets with low-cost, excess renewable energy. And they build their own highly efficient Bitcoin data centers and are led by a seasoned management team with a track record of success across renewables, infrastructure, and digital assets. Danny and I met with the team in Canada and were super impressed with their values, which align with us, so they are a great fit for what Bitcoin did. We have now been working with Iris Energy for a number of months across the podcast, films and events, and they're even sponsoring my football team, Rail Bedford. It's been really great to work with such a forward-thinking and sustainable Bitcoin company. So if you want to find out more about them, please head over to irisenergy.co, which is I-R-I-S 
E-N-E-R-G-Y.co. Also today we have Ledden. Now from savings accounts to personal loans and even mortgages, Ledden's financial services enable Bitcoiners to experience the benefits of holding today without selling their Bitcoin. Ledden have a robust risk management strategy and always prioritize safeguarding clients' assets with no DeFi yield farming. And Ledden only supports Bitcoin and USDC, two of the highest quality and most liquid assets in the industry. They are also dedicated to transparency and are the first digital asset lending company to complete a proof of reserves attestation, which they re-verify every six months. Ledden also have a brand new product, Prime Loans, that allows private wealth clients to lend assets on their terms and by locking in for a fixed term, they can earn even more interest. Ledden has a team of seasoned experts ready to work with you through the entire process to ensure your assets generates yield while protecting your principal. If you want to find out more, please head over to ledden.io, which is L-E-D-N dot I-O. Have any of them, have you had to kind of like hold their hand through the last year or so? Lots. Yeah. Yeah. This has been a tough year. So, the, so, so you know, being in finance is very different than being a physician. Being a physician, you have this nice, strong, steady income through thick and thin. In finance, you go up, you ride the cycles. Uh, so it's, it's painful. So um, that's, that is a downside of, of managing money for people is your, my income, you know, went way down over the last year as well. Had to do a lot of handholding, lost lots of clients. The clients, just like anything, they come, they come in at the wrong times and they leave at the wrong times as yeah. far as I'm concerned. Right. And, and Bill Miller, uh, the third gave some great advice on this that really helped me personally as a, as a fund manager, I can't control when my clients come in, when they go, like they all want to come in at the top. They think you're a magical superstar that can, you know, cause we crush the market, you know, in the good years. And then on the tough years though, they all leave when you're kind of, so you're already down and out and then they give you a kick. You know, I say they, they punch you in the face and kick you in the shorts is that's kind of what it feels like managing money for people, uh, during the downtimes and lots of people leave. And I'm always like, this is when you should be coming in, right? You should come at the bottom of cycles and get ready to ride up the next cycle higher uh but people do what they do and i just have to let that go because i can't control the flow of clients it must be a tough but fascinating time to be managing people's money with everything that's going on oh yeah well it always is to be to be honest Um, but there are some times where it's exceedingly clear from my perspective from a macro you know i'm kind of a macro guy it's easy sometimes like 2022 for me was easy i got really unpopular uh on bitcoin twitter in 2022 because i was dr bear they called me i'm like it's going to be a bad year you guys like like we were sitting at 50,000. i'm like i think it's going to go lower we went down to 40 i'm like i think it could drop in half from here you guys that's the stuff i'm looking at people screamed at me you know he just hated me hated me and i'm just like i'm just telling you what i would want to hear if i was in your shoes right what did you see well, just the macro backdrop was terrible. So the, so I'm a business psycho guy. So I knew that we had, we had crescendoed basically at the end of 2020, 2021. I'm a big liquidity guy. Uh, so, so liquidity had basically peaked and was rolling over now. And now it was contracting. The business cycle was, had peaked and rolled over and was now contracting. And that's, and stocks see that they sense what's going on. They sense the trouble underneath the hood and actually Bitcoin above all senses, both of those things. It senses the health of an economy but it mostly senses liquidity. It's the great absorber of liquidity. So when you see liquidity start to roll over, Bitcoin just kind of naturally follows what liquidity is doing uh, throughout the world. And so I just saw that coming. I'm like, this is going to continue based on cyclical things we can look at. You can sort of, I I can't see the future, but you can, you can compare it to what we had and what's coming up next. And we have many quarters of probably bad performance. So that's why, so Bitcoin Miami 2022, 
I think I was there on stage and I said, this is, Bitcoin was at 40K around there. And I'm like, it's going lower, you guys. Like, don't, don't trade, you know, Bitcoin is savings. You don't trade your savings or your checking account. So that's what I would say. This is a great time to be dollar cost averaging, but just prepare yourself emotionally and mentally. We're probably going to go lower. I, I wouldn't be surprised if we got cut in half down to 20K uh, and then it happened. You know, not that I know the future, but you can just kind of see where things are going. Um, so how much clarity do you have right now? Not as much. So that's getting back to your question. Yeah. There are times. So, so why don't I have clarity? Because the data is mixed and weird right now. Yeah. And, and, and so, so around the world, there is a clear manufacturing recession going on. Okay, so let me back up. Everything changed with COVID. And that's, that's another major thing. I, th I think of the economy and how stocks and bonds and things flow. They're always cyclical, right? They're like a sine wave. And, and I, I used to, I play guitar a little bit. It's kind of like a guitar string. What happened with COVID, somebody came and plucked it super hard. They pulled the string down and everything just crashed and came to a halt. Supply chains came to a halt. All of finance, small businesses got just decimated because of the, the what the government uh, you know forced uh, small businesses to do. We don't have to get into that. But then it, it, it creates this sort of shock wave, almost like throwing a rock into a pond or something. It creates these big waves. So there was this massive pull down and then we had this massive rebound, right? And that was helped by the fiscal stimulus. So the government's like, okay, y'all get free money. We're gonna just plop tons of money into your account. And back then I was like, what's this gonna do? It's gonna cause inflation, real inflation, price inflation to just go to the moon. Uh, you can't just give people a ton of free money uh, without expecting prices to go up, right? So, so we have a, now a, a limited supply of goods uh, and services and people with tons of, they're just flush with cash in their bank accounts. So that's, it just by necessity is going to mean that CPI is going to, to rise and get out of control. Um, which is what happened. And so, so then we had this spike higher, productivity, GDP, everything went higher to the end of 2021. And then you have that recovery. Now what's happening like that guitar string, it gets pulled way down, rebounds way up, and now it's kind of going smaller and smaller in between until it kind of stabilizes into a more normal sine wave again. So we're still feeling the effects of that right now. To your question, manufacturing in the US and around the world is clearly already in a recession. It's, it's massive contractionary levels right now. Um, and, and you see it's, the data just shows that super clearly. But in the US, manufacturing is only a small part of GDP. We're a services economy for the most part. So is that a massive risk to China? Sure. Yeah, they are actually showing recessionary conditions right now. Right. Um, their their, their uh, producer price inflation, so what the, the cost of goods for the producers, the, the, the manufacturers, way down. We're actually seeing deflation in, in China and other parts of Asia right now. So, so we're seeing that we're, we're, we're heading into, and you could argue we're already in a global synchronized manufacturing recession. The only thing that's holding it up is here in the US, because we have such a strong services component, we are not completely in a, a services recession right now. And that is the strongest part. That's why the US economy keeps holding up and we have this dichotomy right now. The, the hard part for me as a fund manager is how do you manage through that? Are, if, depending on who you read, and, I, and, and if you pay attention, the bears who are super doom and gloomers, they talk about banks, credit contractions, and they talk about manufacturing recession. Uh, th those are the stats that they'll point out. And then you have the super optimistic people. They'll talk about unemployment being low and services is still hanging on there. So that's doing well. That's bullish. Manufacturing is bearish. What are markets going to do? I look at, I say, I take those two things, but then for me, what's more important, what supersedes all of that is what is liquidity doing. So net liquidity, 
bottomed in the fourth quarter of 2022, both in the US and in the world, kind of worldwide liquidity, and has been increasing ever since. There was a big scare going into the debt ceiling debacle, the debate, uh, which was resolved with there is no ceiling. Like you know, the emperor's wearing no clothes, right? Um, and so, so we have unlimited spending ability. The concern with that, and lots of smart people were talking about this leading up to this, what about the refilling of the Treasury General account? Because isn't that going to take liquidity out of the system? But what I was telling people is yes, but what, what's more important now at this point is to watch what is the overnight reverse repo market doing? Because there's two over $2 trillion at the time, like $2.2 trillion just sitting there waiting to be a reserve liquidity option if in case the Treasury General account needs to get refilled. So what we've seen since that was passed... Well, let's back up a second. Sure. Explain to people what the reserve... Sure. So, liquid, so net liquidity yeah. is made up of basically three main components. And so when people think of quantitative tightening and easing, what they're talking about is what is the Fed's balance sheet doing? So the Fed has been, and they're, they're still doing tightening officially, meaning they're letting, they're letting treasuries and mortgage-backed securities roll off of their balance sheet. So kind of their checking account, um, that's getting smaller. As that decreases, that is a contractionary net liquidity type event. But that's only one part. Part two is what is the treasury general account doing? Treasury general account. So the treasury pays out. So Americans, when you pay taxes, that goes into the treasury general account, like into their checking account. And then when the when the uh, treasury pays out, they do fiscal things like uh, you know we're going to create projects or we're going to invest in something or we're going to give. Oh, perfect. Yeah. So that's the Fed's balance sheet. So right Danny's now. just brought up uh, a, a chart. So what you'll notice is it basically peaked uh, in what mid 2022. Mm -hmm. And then, and then that's the quantitative tightening. So they're letting assets roll off, and then when that bank when you say roll off, what does that mean? So they just let them expire. So what they do is they buy treasuries and mortgage-backed securities, and they have end dates. Mm -hmm. And when the date ends, they just let it. They 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 take the money and and let it. Okay. They don't they don't buy more. And then right? this was the bank failure. That right? was the bank failure. So that was the bank term funding program that the regional banks have been accessing. So that's why you saw that spike. So that I call those liquidity patches. It's when they see trouble and they see the system is getting shaky, right? And it felt like the world was going to collapse at that point, or at least the banking system was going to collapse. Um, they do these liquidity patches, and that helps stave off a disaster. So that that interrupted it, but now they're clearly doing some QT again. Although you'll notice it's not quite as steep as it was before. It's close, but it's, it's if you get to uh, go to June-ish. Uh, see how it just a little bit before go left. Yeah, right in there. See how it flattens out right there. Mm, yeah. So that's more people using the bank term funding program as well. Uh, uh, and uh, the FHLB as well, which I can't remember what that stands so, for. So that's mo most likely regional banks feeling a bit of stress. Yes. So regional banks are feeling stressed and the Fed is saying, we'll take that garbage that you have, those long dated treasuries that we kind of forced you to buy a few years ago and mm -hmm. forced you to buy, um, whether, you know, the uh, people have strong opinions either way. I just think that's kind of the options they had is they had to buy something in a zero interest rate world. But this is healthy. So, well, no. A healthy trajectory? No. So no. I think this is stupid that they're doing this. Okay. So Powell wants to decrease that. He's being shrewd right now, right? This is what they say they're doing. This is the quantitative tightening. Uh, we're going we're gonna to go off on a couple tangents here. So, so, so this is the quantitative tightening. He says this is what we need to do in order to basically cause the economy contract destroy demand, bring down inflation. 
right? So that's that's number one of net liquidity. Second is um, the Treasury General account. When the Treasury General account fills up, the way to think about it is it's sucking money out of the private sector and uh-huh. putting it onto the government's yeah, checking account. So what happened after you know we got to that debt ceiling debacle, we were almost about to default, uh, and then the Treasury um, had to refill. I don't know if you have that chart. Um, yeah. Basically, so starting in June, the Treasury went from near zero billions of dollars to it. Now they're up around 400 billion, and that's what they said they're going to go to either 425 or 450 billion dollars to refill the Treasury General account. That is contractionary. That's net negative for liquidity, which is a net negative for risk assets. Right. Third part is the overnight reverse repo market. That's basically. Danny, can you explain the overnight repo market? Uh, it's been explained to me so many times. How many times have we had it done? I mean, <laughs> the Lynn's probably done it ten before times. Before we get to that, here's the uh, oh, good. Treasury General. Yeah, account. the TGA. So what's that sitting at right now? That's above five hundred billion. Yeah, just above five hundred. Yeah. Okay. That's nice. Um, I only have a chart that updates weekly, so that's cool. That's so so. Um, that was what everyone was concerned about, where it went from that bottom near zero. 23 billion up to where it is now, that was going to suck liquidity out of the system and people were concerned that that was gonna cause risk assets to fall. But what I was saying at that time is watch the overnight reverse repo market. And I don't know if you can pull up that chart. Um, Explain what, what that is so, again so, for the millionth time. Okay, first. so you have money market funds. Yeah. They, they give you an interest rate of whatever, four and a half percent it's sitting at right now. What they do is they park their collateral in the overnight reverse repo market, which is zero risk. And the Federal Reserve says, we, and if you can focus it up on like from like 2022 to current. Yeah, okay, so that's really helpful. So, so, so they, can, they can park it there and get a return. And right now that rate, the award rate is 5.05% for basically zero risk. You can just park your stuff here. We will give you 5.05%. You can take a little cut of that and then give the rest to your money market fund owners. That's one option they have to have interest. And, and how, how long would they leave it there for? Overnight. Literally it's overnight. Yeah, okay. but you can keep it there as long as you want. Right. But it pays, pays daily basically. Yeah. So, or they can buy treasuries. So the concern was as the, as the treasury then to refill its treasury general account and to pay for all the fiscal deficits of the US, they have to, rele- they have to create tons of short, short-dated T-bills, right? And so now these people are saying, okay, I can even I can leave my money, our, our money parked here for 5.05% with no risk, or I can buy the no risk T-bills, which are currently, if you see like a one month or three month T-bills, I think they're between like 5.11% for the one month and maybe 5.25 or 5.3% for the three month treasury bills. Why do they need this money overnight? Why do they leave it? No, why does why is it part overnight? Why is there an of an overnight reverse? They repo? just have What's tons of excess cash, and it's a way for them to earn interest. No, what, yeah, but why does the treasury want it overnight? The, so the treasury, so the Fed. Sorry, the Fed. Yeah, the Fed controls the overnight reverse repo market. But I don't. What is reverse repo? So, so it's it's you're parking your collateral with the Fed, and yeah. in return, the Fed is giving you. They want this because this is sort of a backup money bag. Okay. It's a backup bag of liquidity. And so what they can do then is is what they did, they kept that rate at 5.05% while the short T-bills, the shorter term treasury rates are going higher. 
And so the people in the money market say, you know what, I can get a better rate if I buy these T-bills. I'm going to pull money out of the overnight reverse repo market. I'm actually going to buy these T-bills that the Treasury is selling right now. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. So it's just shifting it from here. And so the Fed uses this as just sort of these bags of it's shifting the liquidity around. Mm -hmm. And it has, because that has gone up so much, um, yeah, so you got the one month rate sitting at 5.35%. So so look at from... May, yeah, in that May 2023 time period, and how it's basically just fallen off a cliff. Mm. It's gone from 2.25 billion or whatever it was, yeah, yeah to, so 2.27. Now it's today, it's sitting at 1.7. So what that means is, uh, what is that? 750 trillion. So, that's 1, 000, so think of it. In, you said 1.7, but is that 1,700 billion? Yes, which so so two so, so where Danny trillions. has the market at, yeah trillion so two point two seven trillion yeah it was at at towards the end of May it's fallen all the way down to one point you know eight trillion so what's this telling us that means that all of the concern we had about the TGA getting refilled and sucking liquidity out of the system actually most of that came out of the overnight reverse repo market so that offset the liquidity contraction so net net it's basically net negative. Does that make sense? I think so. So liquidity basically just is kind of going sideways, even though people were concerned that it was going to drop off a cliff and risk assets were going to get hammered. Does that play into this Treasury General account, how this increased by 500 billion? Yes. So that's where the 500 billion's gone? Yes, for the most part. So it's just moved from the, from it, the Fed to the It's just shift pockets, basically. <laughs> and so the private markets weren't really affected by that. So that's why we're still seeing a good performance in stocks and Bitcoin, things like that. They didn't fall off a cliff, which a lot of people were concerned about. All that, all that did is it just kept that stuff just all shifting. So if at some point this, so that's what I was, this is the best case scenario is we, I wanted to see the overnight, if, if I was long risk assets and long Bitcoin, I want to see that going down. And they still have 1.8 trillion sitting there just as reserve liquidity waiting to come out into the system. So, which it can, so, so the, the way the Fed manipulates that is they could say, you know what, we want even more to come out. We're going to lower the reward rate in the overnight reverse repo market from 5.05%. Let's put it down to 4.5%. Then people will even more soak up. They'll buy more, tra- they'll pull so money they'll out of that. they'll put money into the bond. So, yep. And then the, and then, then the more flush that the bank reserves are in the U.S., the more they can take their excess liquidity and move it further out on the risk curve and cause risk assets to rise in price. Does that all make sense? I see, yeah. I think so. Bullish, I definitely couldn't explain it, but it makes a lot more What's sense. What's that? Bullish for Bitcoin. It's not, well, I would say it's not bearish for Bitcoin. Okay. okay. I, what, I, what, what will be bullish for Bitcoin is when the Fed finally pivots and says, we're doing, so the first thing we looked at with the Fed's balance sheet, how it's still going down, we want to see that going back up yeah, again. So, so CPI print this morning was 3%. Yep. Interesting thing that um, Preston said last night where he said uh, um, inflation in the UK is a quoted about 9%. It's actually about 11 and a half. But in the US, it was quoted at four, but it's actually two. He was looking at the trueflation metric, yeah. you know, that site. I don't know how they, I haven't looked into it enough, yeah. but yeah. But down to 3% means trajectory rise. We're heading towards that kind of 2% they want. Uh, chance they, is there a chance they overshoot and we head to deflation? Oh, sure. Could okay. we get a deflationary bust? Yeah. If they continue to stay hawkish, as the economy is rolling over and we're, ha- we're having this, you know, at least manufacturing recession, everything is sort of on the edge right now. So if I were Powell, what I would say is we've done it. I would give myself a pat on the back. We've done a great job. He would take all, I would take all the credit for it, even though it's, it's the, more of the markets and not what they're doing. 
Um, and then I would say, we've gone far enough. Before we break anything, let's ease off a little bit. And I would actually lower rates at this point a little bit. Uh, now, he, now he's going to come out and he's not going to do that. They're going to stay hawkish and they're going to say, we don't want a repeat of the 1970s, so we can't get easy too quickly. I don't want to be known as Arthur Burns. I want to be known as Paul Volcker. Uh, and so well, I'm going to slay inflation. Uh, but I think he's going to overdo it. And so the longer they keep these tightened conditions, you know, too hawkish conditions, the more they risk more bank failures, slowing the economy too much. Economy doesn't like that. Risk assets, if they sense that, then the floor will drop out and we could have a late 2008, early 2009 moment where everything crashes and we actually see actual deflation. That's not good. And that would cause them to quickly pivot, they'll quickly lower rates, go back to QE. You know, There'll be chaos everywhere, blood in the streets. Bitcoin. So, so how bad is deflation? Because there are people in the world of Bitcoin who say deflation is fine. Depends what we're talking about. So there, yeah. so and like Jeff Snyder talks about this, yeah. a lot of smart people talk about this. I have massive respect for Jeff Snyder, but I think he's wrong in this. Uh, he's wrong because he's correct in terms of government fiat. When you have depreciating currency, fiat currency, you have to have inflation to make it go. Deflation is the death knell of an of a inflationary currency and an expansionary credit-based Keynesian system. Bitcoin is different. It's just built differently. It's an equity-based system. It's designed to be deflationary or at the very least disinflationary. And so they're two different things. So what, I, what I've noticed is all of the people who, are, who seem like they're right there, you know, like as Foss would say, they're on the one yard line, they ran the ball all the way and, then, and they just can't quite get in the end zone. It's because they're stuck on this aspect. They're so used to the government fiat system that they can't imagine a, an entirely different system that's built on deflation. So... I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. Do you think there's a risk we head into a uh, recession with inflation? So what I think the most likely outcome for this decade is basically a period of stagflation. So stagnant economy. Yeah. Possibly dipping into a recession uh, but, uh, and then popping out of it again. And high, sticky high and volatile inflation. So very different from last decade, right? Where we just had kind of a strong economy, very, very low, abnormally low inflation and, and near zero interest rates. I think this decade is gonna be, I think even though the causes are different, I think it will look and feel a lot like the 1970s um, based on kind of what history, obviously, you know, we weren't old enough for that. We were probably both born in the seventies, but like, uh, so I can't, I can't really remember it, but looking back, I think that period of uncertainty, inflation spiking off and on and the fed, you know, heroic, heroically coming in to save us, uh, with their policies, even though I think they probably cause more harm than good. Uh, and then just, a, a frustratingly, uh, weak economy, I think is, is what we're going to be stuck with. We're just overextended when you're over indebted, you it's, you're basically pushing this mountain ahead of you and you're, you're, you're stealing future productivity, future growth, and we're, we're getting it all today. You can only do that for so long before the game runs out, right? So you, you, you get that Japanification concern at some point that we just can't grow out of this anymore because we just have too much debt. Uh, I think there's going to be more and more talk about a debt jubilee mm. uh, this decade, which is insanity uh, that we would come to that point. But, but Is there an alternative option? Well, well, Bitcoin. And, 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 to an I, extent. And, and I actually mean that. I think I think that if government, so so say just today, you know, Powell resigned and they they pulled me in as as Fed chair, or maybe Yellen resigned and I took over as Treasury, or it wouldn't. I would want much smarter people than me. But but so say I got forced in that position. The first thing I would do is I would start buying 
Bitcoin as a reserve asset and start strengthening our economy. And when you do that, like I talked about earlier, it forces an honest unit of account, right? It forces austerity where you don't want it, even if it's unpopular. It forces you to quit stealing from the future and taking the benefits today and giving our problems to our kids and our grandkids, which is just treachery, I think. I just mm. think it's insane what we do uh, in, in the US and basically the entire Western world. Um, it would be uncomfortable, but it's necessary. And if you did that over time, what we'd do is we would start generating growth again and we would grow out of this debt and we would, because we would stop taking new debt on and Bitcoin as, as the, the government buy, bought it, it would start increasing the price. It would start bringing wealth back to the people who own it as well. Right. And so you're going, you're going to start growing the GDP in different ways that are very different from now. And you're going to start creating this sort of inner system inside this big blob of debt and low growth and frustration and uh, hopelessness, you're going to create this little ball of light that's going to be this equity-based income-produced, income-generating type uh, nidus that is going to grow and grow and eventually grow into like expand and explode that debt bubble that we're in right now. So it's it's hard to understand, but I think it's, it's something needs to happen that's dramatic, right? You can either have, because with a debt jubilee, there are lots of things to think about. First of all, it's going to cause chaos. We're, we're going to, it's only going to stoke and increase geopolitical attentions. It could end up in a war. I know you, you're probably familiar with the fourth turning kind of stuff. Yeah. We're sort of in a fourth turning period right now. Um, it's probably actually going to end with a major war, which none of us want. So what are some alternatives? And I think Bitcoin is just literally the most viable solution. Uh, I'm just hoping that government embraces it. And that's why it's encouraging to, to come back to your point that uh, politicians, political candidates, even if they're not overly serious and they, they, you know, they're not the front runners, they're still talking about Bitcoin. And there's, you know, they're still pandering to this, uh, this audience. That did not happen four years ago. Uh, so we're, we are moving in the right direction. The fact that Larry Fink, who's, the, who's the king of ESG, is officially on Bitcoin's side now, it literally changed the narrative in one day. That's what I think is the most important thing about Larry Fink. That's what Harry said last night. Yeah, and I agree completely with that. The narrative shifted the second he said that. And and literally that day, a couple hours later, uh, you know, not to dox, not to, not to dox my father-in-law, but he, he's been very anti-Bitcoin and kind of, you know, thinks it's funny that I've been into it and says, well, it's used by criminals and it's bad for the environment and it wastes energy. And I'm like, no, no, no. Uh, but, but that's the narrative he has heard because people like Larry Fink and the and the big brokerage houses have been talking about that. That day he called and he was interested in Bitcoin for the first time, you know, and I think that's not unusual and I think it's not a surprise. So the fact that the narrative is changing is super encouraging to me, whether or not a spot Bitcoin ETF gets approved. And you guys have probably noticed too, but you just, you, you're, it's, it's almost like uh, all the headline, the headline machine just kind of got turned off and they're not talking about it anymore. Do you know what it's like? It's like, you know, when it's, uh, you know, it's like storms, you look across the horizon, storms, and then the clouds part and the sun comes through. Yes. It kind of is like that moment. It is a bit misleading. Somebody put out that, um, uh, you know, Larry Fink has come out as pro-Bitcoin, and look at all these positive news articles from Forbes. That, this, that's actually a little bit disingenuous because Forbes has been positive for a long time. I think, what's that guy, Level 39? Yep. Yeah, he put out a thread very good thread, listed those journalists and how they've declared they hold Bitcoin, how they've been writing positive Bitcoin for a while. So so that was a bit disingenuous. I don't know if it's on purpose or not. But at the same time, 
I think we are going to just naturally see that shift. I'm waiting for the first positive New York Times. Yeah, here we go. So level 39, at level 39, big shout out to you. The idea that BlackRock's Bitcoin ETF is responsible for recent positive Bitcoin coverage in Forbes ignores that many contributors have been working tirelessly for months on reframing Bitcoin in the press. Let's meet those contributors hard at work. So he goes down and you've got plebeius economists and crypto bastardo who I interviewed in Venezuela, actually. Hmm. Um, And so he's just listed them all. So it's really, really cool. That's great. Yeah. But what I, and I guess my rebuttal to that is nobody cared though that they were doing this until Larry Fink did what he did. Yeah. But give me a New York Times. Yes. Bitcoin is good for the environment article. And then it's like, right, let's go. We're in. Yeah, we're in. I agree. And I think it's going to come. I mean, I think the narrative shift has been coming. Mm -hmm. And I think, uh, it's kind of getting to the point whereby it's been, it's kind of been embarrassing some of the people coming out against Bitcoin and how they've been coming out against it. And we've seen lots of different things. I think Alex Gladstein has been great on the narrative side. I think Jason Meyer, him coming out with his book, has been super useful. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then look, the tireless work that other people have done from years, from Pierre Rochards to uh, uh, Bistein. It's like there's so many people over the years who try to frame it always in the right way. It, getting that leaking out into the mainstream press is super important. Uh, Natalie Brunel does really great interviews uh, covering it as well. Big shout out to Natalie. And so, you know, we are seeing that shift. I think it's it's almost you're almost moronic now when you see these articles come out as very anti-Bitcoin. Right. It's like, what's your agenda here? Right. The next step is the politicians. You know, these presidential candidates have realized, and we do have a number of people like Cynthia Lamas, Ted Cruz, who are pro-Bitcoin and understand it. It's going to be interesting what happens to the likes of Elizabeth Warren because she has an anti-crypto army, which, by the way, we're kind of on the same page, right. part of that. Right. But if she actually comes out with a shift and says, you know, I got this wrong, that's when it will be interesting, a game changer. I do, I do think there's a massive difference between someone like Cynthia Lummis, who's clearly a Bitcoiner, yeah. and the people that have come out just begging Bitcoiners for money. I think we're very naive, and anyone who says pro-Bitcoin, we're like throwing money at them as a as a community, as an industry. But Cynthia Lummis is very different. I think you need to keep her in a completely separate bracket. Yeah, mm-hmm. but, but I do trust RFK on this issue, and I don't agree. Well, I'd love to know your views on him and uh, uh, his uh, anti Vaccine. I, I don't want to say anti-vaccine. I think that's always a pejorative term. But he is skeptical of vaccines. I'd love to know yours. Maybe we'll do that offline. But mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm nervous around that. But like, you never agree with a politician on everything. But I believe him when he is pro-Bitcoin. I believe he gets it. And I believe I don't trust Ted Cruz, but I think Ted Cruz understands money. And DeSantis, to some extent, very anti-CBDC. You know, mm-hmm. and I'm not a DeSantis fan. But um, I don't believe Vivek. And that's not to say I'm anti-Vivek. I'd happily sit down with him again and have a conversation, but I don't believe he is a Bitcoiner. I think he's a fiat Bitcoiner, maybe. Like, a, yeah. he's a BlackRock Bitcoiner. <laughs> a BlackRock Bitcoiner. BlackRock Bitcoiner. That could catch on. Yeah, man. Um, we uh, we need a, a translation done, don't we? What do you mean? The Luke Woman tweet. Oh. <laughs> We've got this tweet from Luke Woman, and I, for the best of me, used everything... Every bit of energy I have to try and translate this tweet. Okay. You posted this today. Yeah. The Fed getting inflation down before debt to GDP was inflated back to sustainable, uh, sustainable levels. It's like watching a dog catch the car. Okay, you caught it. Now what are you going to do with that? All right, I'm cool here. Is this bit. Here's how fast positive real rates induces fiscal dominance with debt to GDP and deficits this high. I don't understand it. What's he saying here? I hope you can do this. 
I know you put me on the spot here. I, if we put the three of our heads together, maybe we can translate what Luke is trying to say. He's so smart. I well, assume he's saying that they've not let, they've not inflated the debt away. They didn't leave inflation high enough for long enough to inflate the debt away. Yeah. yeah. I, so, so, and I think that this kind of gets back to, to uh, and I don't want to put words in his mouth, but what I was talking about with the 70s, the kind of stagflationary episode is just because we got it down here now at, at these levels does not mean that we're through the, through the w- woods yet, right? It's going to come back and it's going to rear its ugly head. And, and I think that's why Powell is going to talk about, he's still going to speak hawkishly, even though we're, we should be cheering. Lots of people in the markets are cheering that the CPI is down to 3%. Um, we're not through the woods yet. Uh, I think inflationary is basic, uh, inflation itself is kind of entrenched this decade. It's here to stay. The only way to get out of that is by growing our GDP, but we have this stagnant economy. And again, I think that's what he's talking about, the debt to GDP ratio. You have two factors there. You can get your debt down or your GDP up. We're obviously not going to get our debt down, so you have to grow your GDP. Uh, and I don't see lots of uh, hope for that right. this decade. I think we're just going to have a stagnant economy, and it's going to be almost impossible to grow out of that and to get that debt-to-GDP number down. So it's encouraging in the short term, but we're not through the inflation story yet. And I think we're going to be talking about this, unfortunately, for on, years and years. Uh Coinbase is trending. I always think it's funny to see the things that are trending together. Coinbase, the FBI, and Tate. Uh, what's, why is Coinbase trending? I don't know. Probably because it's down again. Because <laughs> Bitcoin's uh, pumping. Uh, so Bank of America just closed my personal bank account that I've used for 15 years for no reason. Welcome to my world, Maneeb. Real reason I do Coinbase transactions through this account for Bitcoin. This is a war on Bitcoin and crypto. Please, Art. I mean, that's just... Why would Bank of America be doing that at a time? Oh, that's why. Yeah, that would be why. Kathy Wood sold Coinbase shares. I saw that earlier. She, they, they, they've yo-yoing in and out of Coinbase quite a bit. Yeah, her timing isn't awesome. No. She, I, I actually like a lot of what she has to say, but man, she makes oh, it I've hard. seen this the last few yeah. days as well. In, in March 2020, Coinbase held over 1 million Bitcoin. This has now dropped to 439,000. The exchanges are being drained. Bitcoin is the cost of true price discovery. That's a few exchanges. Is it? Can we see all exchanges? Mm, is that a glass yeah. mode thing? Yeah, I don't know if I have access to that chart. Let me try. And... Um, Willie would know. Um, but I've heard it's everywhere. I'm sure it is after the last year. If it's mm. not, you'd be done. It's, it's, it's that root chart, isn't it? Rational root. Yeah. Well, we should definitely do this again. Love this. Yeah. yeah. And uh, we'd love to have you over in the UK and uh, sit down and, and chat again at some point, take you to a football match. I would love it. See some real football. That'd be great. Yeah, this is awesome. Uh, loved it. Uh, tell people how to follow your newsletter. Sure. So, well, you. so I'm most active on Twitter. My handle is at Vilshire Cap. You can find me there. Um, and then if you, you know, I'm, like I said, I manage uh, money and run a hedge fund. Um, you could send me an email directly at info at Vilshire.com uh, or just check out Vilshire.com, the website, and be happy to get back to you. Did you find it? You can't have it, fuckers. All right. <laughs> See you later, man. <laughs> All righty. What did you make of that one? I really enjoyed sitting down with Jeff. It's been long overdue. And while I didn't expect to get into or plan the medical stuff, I do think it's a very interesting topic of conversation, how people deal with medicines, how it's dealt with in the UK versus the US, different parts of the world. It's definitely a fascinating subject. Now, if you want to get in touch, you've got any questions about this, anything else, please do hit me up. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. And as I said, the football season starts on Tuesday. 
Real Bedford versus MK Irish. The league starts again. Here we go. We're going to go and try and win another league. All right. Have a great weekend, and I will see you all next week.